As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. Joining me today, I'm super excited. A voice you've heard on this show once before, Dr. Matteo. How is it going? Thanks for having me, Mamadou and Christian. It's great to be with you. You know, we're surviving in the face of genocide. And exactly, we are surviving and many of us feel helpless in this moment but we carry on and we carry on in solidarity of the people of palestine in which we continuously call from the river to the sea a free palestine and joining me is my co-host christian this episode i wanted to speak about the axis of resistance and why i think it's important is because oftentimes because of the logics of the war on terror what we found is that the construction of the muslim in the imaginary of, of specifically the US and more broadly the West. Muslims are painted to be irrational. Muslims are painted to be bloodthirsty. But all too often when I'm seeing leaders give interviews from these resistance movements, they are far from that. They are actually, <laughs> they have piercing insights of imperialism. They have a great analysis. So I wanted to kind of give our listeners a historical understanding to what is known as the axis of resistance. So my first question is, what is the axis of resistance? Well, that's a great question. And inevitably, it's going to take us to delve into the history of of the region and the history of imperialism. So the axis of resistance is a social political block. If we want to use the social political formation that emerges in the late uh, 1970s, since the Iranian revolution, we can trace it back. And it is currently comprised of five main actors, or being the Islamic Republic of Iran, Hezbollah, the Popular Mobilization Unit in Iraq, and there is another group I can't remember right now, Syria, Ansar Allah in Yemen, and very recently, which is connected to, you know, to the situation in Palestine, has been the connection with the Palestinian resistance faction, Hamas, and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Now, when we look and when we think of the axis of resistance, we're thinking about uh, this group of states and militias that have developed a material, an ideological, and thus political agenda that is ant- that aims to undermine the power of US-led imperialism in the region on the basis of regaining national sovereignty for each and every country that in which they are located. And inevitably, which, you know, this leads me to talk about what? About the question, the fact that national sovereignty in the region is directly related to freedom from the imperialist yoke. And by stepping back just for a second, Let's frame the, you know, we need to frame the, you know, the importance of the axis of resistance in order vis-a-vis the imperialist project in the region. What is the imperialist project in the region and what is the role of Israel inside the imperialist project? When we look at U.S. imperialism and the American project of domination of the world, we know very well 
I mean, all of us, that each, that after World War II, the U.S., you know, grew, became a superpower. And in the geostrategy of U.S.-led imperialism since World War II, the Arab region had a unique role, especially due to its oil wealth, because it was a key natural resources for the imperialist countries. So control, political control, guaranteed access, not just to the oil, but to the region, meant security for the American project in the Arab region. Now, this control took place through two faithful allies. One is the Zionist entity, what we also know as Israel, and the other one is the Gulf monarchies. Now, the the Zionist entity became effectively a U.S. military outpost in the region. You know, we know all the statements by U.S. presidents have called it a a, a military aircraft carrier, Biden that said, uh, you know, this famous, uh, you know, speech at APAC, I think it is, where he's talking about if we didn't have Israel, we had to create one. So this keeps going on and on. Now, now what is important about this is the fact that Israel has a peculiarity, you know, there is a peculiarity to the Zionist entity, which is the capacity to incubate this mode of political and cultural consciousness in promoting Western values in the region while securing U.S. power in the region. So the moment Israel acquired nuclear weapons and the moment Israel invaded and attacked all the countries of the region, including Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, and I'm not talking about direct invasion, just even attack, Now you see that Israel has been a major force, not just behind imperialist control, but its corollary, which is fundamental here to understand, which is what? Arab and and Islamic development. Because the moment, you know, you you posit, you create a settler colonial entity in the region to control the capacity of that region to thrive, then the fight for these forces against imperialism is directly related to the liberation of Palestine. And this is where, you know, we go full circle. Now, for the, for the Gulf monarchies, obviously, there has always been a sort of tension between the axis of resistance and the Gulf monarchies. But to close full circle and to make the connection between the axis of resistance as a political social formation that is of states and militias, that has developed a material and ideological project against imperialism in the region, then understanding the support of the axis of resistance vis-a-vis the liberation of Palestine becomes critical. There are obviously, you know, much more... uh, This this project arises, as I said, in the late 1970s because it coincides also with the defeat of the Pan-Arab project. What comes up instead is a new project, is a sort of... is basically the the ideology of of the Iranian revolution. A revolution that was based on the principle of the Vilayat al-Faqih, you know, and the idea of and based on on Shia Islam. So the idea that uh, Imam Khomeini was on the side of the not of the Mustaqbirin, the oppressors, but the Mustafadin, the oppressed. And so in in formulating this idea that the Shia community is not supposed to just wait for the arrival of uh, of the Imam after the. The, uh, the death of Hussein, what happens instead is we need to fight against the unjust, unjust rulers. And this is just, you know, the ideology, the mobilization, the religious mobilization that this the axis of resistance has around which all these groups cohere. But not necessarily each one, you know, is necessarily as uh, religious as as we would like to think. Because at the end of the day, the the fight against oppression is clearly defined in terms that are very secular as well. Because from the start, you can see that uh, the side, by siding with the oppressed, 
they are fighting for the liberation of, of the Palestinians. They are fighting against the Israelis. And this is where the axis of resistance comes slowly in uh, ideologically forms around. It's so important to understand the ideological formation of the axis of resistance because Palestine is central from the very start, even before the revolution, 10 years earlier and right after the revolution. One of the first acts of the, of the Iranian revolutionary government is to close the Israeli embassy and replace it with the first Palestinian embassy in the region in 1979. Khomeini also declares the last Friday of the month of the Ramadan, Al-Quds, Jerusalem Day, as an act of international solidarity of Muslims in support of the legitimate rights of the Muslim people of Palestine. So, and also as a day for the weak to confront the arrogant powers. So we always see this, the centrality, there is a centrality to the Iranian revolution, but there is a centrality to the Iranian revolution in 1979, which is also connected to what? To 1982, the invasion of Israel of Lebanon, which is the key moment when first Amal and uh, and then Hezbollah are created. Even the Sayyid himself, Assad Nasrallah, said that without the invasion of uh, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, probably I doubt there will be any Hezbollah right now. So these movements are movements of national liberation, aware that national liberation and freedom in the region requires a fight against imperialism and thus Zionism. Thank you for that summary, Matteo. I wanted to ask a question about a quote from Hezbollah leader uh, Nasrallah and kind of understand uh, the axis of resistance in the current context. Mm -hmm. So as a, a quote from a November Reuters article says that Hezbollah leader uh, Nasrallah said in a November 3rd speech that Hamas had kept its attack on Israel a secret from its allies, and this has in had ensured its success and not upset anyone in the Axis. As many say, it can only be speculated the logistical truth of what happened on October 7th. But how did the operation on October 7th affect the relationships within the Axis of Resistance, and how have members responded during this current war on Gaza? That's an important question. You know why? Because when we look at the, at the mainstream that is out there, the first thing that we think of when we approach the axis of resistance is, um, first, we have to skim through what Mamadou rightly said at the start, which is, you know, this anti-Islamophobic, this Islamophobic, uh, you know, thick layer that Western society has. So anything to do with Islam becomes immediately, you know, associated to terrorism, which is also why the left, the Western leftists, whatever that is supposed to mean at this, in this historical stage, have been thrown into a complete nightmare because they have no idea what to do anymore. You know, they're looking like, oh my God, we are supposed to, su to support now the Islamic Republic of Iran. Can we side vis-a-vis -vis Hamas? That is, can it be a national liberation movement? So this is the, the first layer that, that, we, that we see in the, in the Western propaganda. The second one is that when we look at the axis of resistance, everything is presented as proxies. Basically, we have of Iran. So each and every actor is a proxy of Iran. Now, on this point, and for those who are listening to us, I really recommend the work of Amal Saad, a Lebanese academic who wrote specifically on this topic. And, uh, and she has this insight that, you know, she explains it very well, why looking at this kind of uh, relationship as a relationship of dependence doesn't make any sense. It doesn't allow us to explain the emergence of each and every group. Why? First and foremost, I'm going to play now a game with you two guys, okay? 
so that uh, we mm-hmm. allow the listeners to understand what, what is happening here. So first and foremost, when we think of Iran, do you know how many years Iran has been under sanctions? First by the US and then the UN? No. No. From 1979, so right after the, <laughs> the takeover of the embassy, then uh, this continued, uh, in, they were upgraded in 1987, and then in 2006, these were only US unilateral sanctions. In 2006, they became UN sanctions. And they are, you know, still there up to now. Okay, so Iran was the country most targeted by the U.S. in terms of sanctions, which was surpassed by Russia only after the the military operation in Ukraine. Now let's take Yemen. There has been a war in 2015. Who has perpetrated this war? Who started this war on Yemen? I guess we all know. It was the Saudi, supported by the U.S. Who invaded Iraq in 2003? USA. U.S. There you go. <laughs> Who invaded Lebanon in 1982? It was Israel. We know yep. that. Yep. Who won the election in 2006? Hamas. And then did not. Uh, who didn't allow Hamas to take over? You know the political situation in Palestine in 2006. USA. There you go. And Israel. Are we missing anybody? I guess no. So what I'm just trying to tell you basically is that in each of these five different scenarios, we have. U.S. control, U.S. infiltration, invasion, destruction. And in each of these scenarios, you create the conditions necessary for social formation to emerge and realize consciously and organically that there is a country that is preventing you from developing. In each of these situations, and you have Ansar Allah in Yemen, again, the, the Qatayb Hezbollah in Iraq, Hamas, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and each one of them grows organically as a group, as a social formation. Now, what happens in this moment? It happens that the only country (laughs) that was not bombed and destroyed by U.S. imperialism in the region, because when by the time you look at uh, 2010, Libya is gone, Iraq is gone. These were the famous Arab republics, the one that I I told you before, belong to the pan-Arabist movement, the one that was also anti-imperialist, but was ideologically and militarily defeated by imperialism. So by the 1990s and the 2000s, the only country standing that can provide some sort of technological support and its uh, ideological support is Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran. So they do start developing ties among each other. But each one of these groups, as I said before, does not work for the interest of Iran. What poses as, as, a, as a key, as a key uh, ideological element to their battle is the national freedom, national movement. Now, national movement requires, as we said, a regional capacity because you can't fight imperialism as one country alone. And Iran knows that very well. Why? And this is very important for those who are listening because Iran didn't withstood the sanction alone. Iran withstood the sanction, how? Thanks to the economic cooperation with China. And this is where we need to start drawing more and more the connection. We need to go broader and understand that the world is one unit of analysis and each part of the world connects to this unit. Do you know, for example, who provided the technological know-how to build its military capabilities to Iran? This is something that it was the it is the democratic Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Mm-hmm. And this is key, you know, because we see really the global South emerging as one. 
And all the, and it was the same North Korea. I mean, they like to call it North Korea, but we call it DPRK, who provided weapons and arms to the Palestinian leftist militias in the 1970s. So what we see and what Amal argues, I mean, with under, uh, with this background in her work, which I think it, it very much replies to your question, is that there is coordination, there is reciprocity, there is comradeship between these groups, obviously. Iran, certainly, and also to see the connection between this, uh, when I'm mentioning this, uh, all these connections between North Korea and Iran, I'm not, I mean, it's not coming out of my fantasy. These are pure facts. You can just go on the website of the CIA and you will see they will tell you these things. So it's not even like some kind of alternative <laughs> network of information. This is coming directly from the main source. So this is important. Why? Because what you see is that uh, there is uh, material and technological sharing know-how. For example, one of the most important things that Iran and, and the other players you know, realized was their, their necessity their, their, the, to build the, their independence in, uh, in producing uh, military equipment so that not each one of them is necessarily dependent on each other. So this is where you see that Hezbollah becomes a player in the Lebanese arena and is not trying to to pursue Iran's interest. But again, it becomes first a movement against the, the invaders, the Israeli, the Israeli, against the Israeli aggression, and then slowly in time realizes the importance to locate itself within Lebanon. So this is an organic process, which, uh, you know, any of this kind of, of labels like proxy of Iran, you know, they're Houthis, they're Shias, then they're, you know, they're funded by Iran, because they try to connect, they try to it, it's 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 a way. It has a philosophical and also an ideological tool. It is the one that you know wants to basically just pinpoint and send everything directly to Iran. They want to tell us, oh, this is Iran is the main evil here. But each one of these players, as we could see now, and it's happening, is operating by itself. And at the same time, Iran is out of the picture. Has been making announcement. Has been making threats but it hasn't entered the conflict, the war, yet. And this is, you know, I think this is something that really needs to be understood very well because when we look at the axis of resistance, we are looking uh, at, uh, at a set of players which has built this ideology that in Arabic it's called muqawame, resistance, uh, for, for whose meaning is resistance. And uh, their main aim is precisely this one, the fight against the arrogant Western project and their allies, and specifically the liberation of Palestine. And so we are in a, in a juncture that what is happening right now in Gaza has uh, an historical value and significance that can be easily compared to what happened with the revolution in Haiti back when it was under French control, because it's, it will start, it's a wave, it's a flood that will start a whole, and it has already started the way we perceive the world around us. I actually have a follow-up to your response uh, because you mentioned the support of DPRK during the 70s to Iran in building up their uh, technological capacities. Are there any other, would you say that there are any other allies to the axis of resistance that lay outside the region itself? I would say that, you know, one of the first... Uh, key pamphlet that uh, 
any PFLP members uh, used to was was given to read when they started their uh, you know their uh, their training was uh, Mao's pamphlet on who's your enemies and your or who are your foes and you are your allies and uh, and this is uh, a key a key moment there because when we look around we you know it is important to understand what what's it's laying out there it's difficult to use the word allies you know in the sense that uh, you know oh they are really my comrades you know they will intervene for me and do this and do that no but what we see is that uh, since the moment iran has withstood this era this decades of sanctions has been able to do that and he did that thanks to the power of China. So when we look at China, when we look at Venezuela, when we look at Cuba, when we look at the reaction of all these countries of Latin Americas that have condemned and called what's happening in Gaza for what it is, a genocide, then this is where we're looking. And this is where, you know, uh, the political compass, it's really like, it's clear on that front. And uh, it varies in terms uh, in the way it translates into material and military or uh, political support but uh, it there is a block which belong which does not belong to the western hemisphere of the world but belongs to the southern part of the world which we refer you know as a global south but we also know that within the global south there are a lot of reactionary elements that survive whose survival is dependent on their connection to US and Western capital and uh, economic interest. But uh, when we look at this, we really need to look at, uh, you know, at the long durée, at the economic elements, at the military, you know, reaction. Even when we look at who, who intervened saving Syria from its destruction in 2015, it wasn't the US, it wasn't, you know, it was Russia. So these are all key elements and key moments of history that require us to understand history as uh, as moving according to the praxis. We can't apply a category and just look around and say, oh, these are my enemies, these are my allies. That as history changes, so our theoretical understanding of the world changes according to history. And so this is how we come to understand, you know, who's around, who around us is an enemy, who's around us is, is an ally. And at this current moment, going back again to your question, I think we, we have the answer. Thank you so much for that. Given what we've seen recently in Israel bombing South Lebanon, we've seen they killed Saleh al-Aruri, and we've seen subsequent two speeches made by the leader of Hezbollah, Sayyid Hassan Nasrullah. My question is, what are you to make of Israel's action in South Lebanon? The mainstream media is speaking about the risk of escalating a regional and turning it into a regional conflict. Others have said that Israel wants a regional conflict because that means they can they will force the U.S. hand to to get involved. So, given what we've seen in the south of Lebanon with Israel's actions and provocations, what are your kind of thoughts of this? And also, when we li- when we listen to um, Sayyid Hassan Nasrullah's speeches, mm-hmm. how serious should we take these threats and what he says? Uh, let's start from the last question, which is, uh, you know, I think it was the very first speech of Sayyid in uh, in the aftermath of uh, At-Tawafan al-Aqsa, which was, uh, I think it was a month after, if I am correct. I'm, 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 no. And it was in uh, in remembrance of the martyrs uh, to Al-Uds. So, and in that speech, what uh, was so indicative was the fact that uh, Everybody was waiting for his speech. There was even like a clip where, uh, you know, he was passing with his uh, shoulders uh, 
uh, walking it's a sort of sub psychological propaganda for the against the israelis you know like he's about to speak and say the son nasrallah is coming and he's about to speak what is he going to say and then he said something that was very important and this is again really connects to what uh, the way i concluded my 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 thoughts uh, in in the last in your last questions which is i am not going to say anything today that you don't know because the main field where the answer is going to take place is the battlefield so and and so if to connect your question to the battlefield now we need to look at hezbollah as one of the most extremely successful non-state actor more political formation that has developed its military tactics several times from 1985 of 1982 since the Israeli invasion of Lebanon to 2000. Hezbollah first relied on guerrilla warfare to defeat the Israeli army. Then, immediately after, it recognized that the future direction of the struggle would have been to defend the south of Lebanon to fortify tunnels in a sort of a positional warfare. And they did not hesitate to abandon the so-called glory of past victories, but instead they began study positional warfare. And by the way, the construction of the tunnels in South Lebanon was heavily financed by the DPRK. Now, afterwards, history proved that they were really, they were correct, because in 2006, what happens? That they achieve an epic victory, not just for Hezbollah in the South of Lebanon, but for the Lebanon as a whole, because the end, once again, they defeat the Israeli invader, the Israeli army. Right after that, what did they start doing? They, they start working on their ability to plan and engage in cross-border warfare and attack strong cities, meaning Israeli border settlements down, right, right, and this was right before 2010. Then they participate in the war in Syria since, the, you know, at least 2013 on the war on Syria. And that's where they start literally using these techniques, each one of them in the war. So they reach a point that when the operation of Tawafan al-Aqsa starts, October 7th, they know already how to engage in this war, whether they know it or not, whether they knew when the operation, you know, was being launched or not. They knew what their goal was, and they've been working and and they've been ready, you know, to they've been uh, building themselves slowly to engage in this battle. So and uh, and this is where the most again we have to go back to to another element of this is uh, is uh, is Sayyid Hassan Nasrallah. You know, are these threats real? Hezbollah has been uh, fighting, and it has been showing that Israeli deterrence is a myth now has been showing that the moment you undermine the most sacred aspects of the Israeli state, which is its security, the military aspect, then you throw the Israeli state into a nightmare. The, Isra- the, the idea itself of Israel starts to fade. So Israel knows how strong Hezbollah is, but at the same time, and I will close here with the rhetorical question, if they haven't been capable of achieving any military and political goal in the Gaza Strip. What do you think it's going to happen if they decide to go in a, on a war against Hezbollah? Exactly. Thank you so much for that response. I think this moment has been quite interesting because we have beginning to see the global order, global world order and its institution to unravel. And one thing I've often said that where those in the West 
are only finally beginning to see what those in the global south always knew about these western institutions and about u.s imperialism so it's just interesting seeing people in the west have these kind of watershed moment and begin to feel <laughs> begin to feel so helpless and they're like oh what about the un and they and they, i haven't even had people say to me oh like how can the usa hold the whole world captive captive like this <laughs> so you have you have things like this going on which is quite interesting to see so i guess one of my final questions before christian can ask is what do you feel the israeli and u.s end game is here because like i know none of us are i guess soothsayers or fortune tellers but yeah. given the analysis of what's taking place and currently what do you feel the end game is here okay I would say that the first, the premise to this question is that uh, there is always, and it happens with all of us, I believe, but this is where I also caution the listeners and myself in the process not to answer with a, you know, with certainty, because we are not fortune tellers. You know, we hear one piece of news, we pierce that piece of news with another, and then we come up with a conclusion around what's going to happen next, which is, you know, history has showed us that that's not really how it works. We wouldn't have any idea that uh, in February 2022, Russia was gonna, you know, invade Ukraine. And uh, in on October 7, 2023, the Palestinian resistance faction would decide to launch a military operation against Israel. And so it is really difficult, you know, to pin down the future. What we can see, though, is that the moment Tawafan al-Aqsa took place, the Israeli government had, was taken by surprise. They had an option, which was a prisoner swap deal. And that is, it seemed to be what also initially, you know, one of the goals of this operation by the resistance faction was to, you know, to pursue this, this swap. But they, didn't, they decided not to do it. They felt that their security had been compromised, their deterrence. And again, we go back to the question of military the military essence, the security essence of the of the of the Zionist state. The moment that was compromised, they needed to reassert, and so they went for uh, for an all-out war. And and there is a good piece by one of uh, one of your favorites, uh, Mamadou Christian Bikram, <laughs> where he talks about uh, this war of two logics. You know, like the war of genocide on the one hand and the war of liberation on the other. Israel went for that logic. It went for the war of genocide. It's an all-out war. They wanted to reestablish their, uh, you know, military primacy through war. So that's what they decided to do. Now, what this means is that they hoped to achieve a certain type of political goal by, let's say, defeating Hamas. That's what they've been told. Actually, not defeating, eliminating Hamas altogether and moving the entire population of Gaza to Egypt. Now they're talking about Chad, Congo, whatever else, you know, they're fantasies, okay? This shows that uh, complete ethnic cleansing and genocide, it's their goal. But that's not a political goal because you are not going to eliminate the conditions needed for resistance to emerge one more time, if not become stronger. So they are cornered in the Gaza Strip. And a lot of, they had a lot of losses so far. We can, you know, according to the estimates to the Israeli government and the people who went into the hospital, we can easily start talking about at least 5,000, at least in Gaza, if not more, which is most likely. And we're talking about not just that, deaths, but also wounded and so forth. Now, if you're not able to achieve military 
goals and political goals, despite having called all your reservists and despite all the shipments of American weapons and the massacre and the genocide that you're t- that you are committing in a 300 kilometer square strip of sand on the coast of the Mediterranean. What do you want to do now? You want to launch yourself into another war in the north? You want to escalate? If you go and escalate, now many says that uh, this might be an option for Netanyahu to stay in power and remain in government. But you know, history is not moved by one per- person. We know that there is an entire Israeli society here that is supporting this. So the end goal, the political goal is to keep going until they are able to inflict damage and claim some sort of victory. At the same time, I believe the US is becoming increasingly concerned that the Israelis can, will not be able to face Hezbollah alone and they will need to drag themselves into this war. Now, will that, is that going to take place? I have no idea. But is that a, a sane strategy? Obviously not. Will, might that accelerate if, they, if that, in case it happens? The decline of U.S. imperialism, 100%, because it's a suicide. Thank you so much for that. Christian? Yeah, I want to revisit a response to what you just said about the various political goals and military goals of Israel. But first, I wanted to ask about something you referred to earlier in this session, which is um, the utility of the Western left. But I think you've also written about this in a monthly review article. And you end uh, with a question, is the European left an enemy of the global South? And your pessimistic point of response is that the West at large appear more and more as a jungle of fascism, breeding injustice and requiring something like Nazi fascism to hold itself together. And this reminds me of the early 20th century in which which, uh, Palestine was treated as a state within the sphere of British influence. And as they desired to politically mitigate the relationship between the Palestinian majority and the already existing Zionist settlers, Elon Pape writes, after the 1929 uprising, the Labour government in London appeared inclined to embrace the Palestinian demands, but the Zionist lobby succeeded in reorienting, reorienting the British government comfortably back onto the Balfourian track. You feel that Western liberal democracies have a tendency towards fascism that cannot be overcome, despite the progressive elements that may might arise from the contradictions that Western liberal democratic projects produce. That's a great question. And uh, for anybody who's uh, interested in delving into this question and specifically on the contradictions of liberalism, I really suggest the reading of uh, Domenico Losurdo, an Italian Marxist. The counter history of liberalism. And I start from Domenico Losurdos because Domenico Losurdo was able to basically show that liberalism is part and parcel of colonialism. Liberalism provided uh, certain freedom to which were claimed to be universal, but only to a specific part of the population. So when uh, white America was free. That freedom was based on the genocide of native Indians, of the Native American population, and the enslaving of black people. So if we go to the root of of liberal society, then we see that the revolutionary and progressive potential does not lie within the West in this historical moment. The West 
is facing a battle, a battle with itself. The West is being uh, submerged by a wave, a renewed wave, not just a wave, a renewed wave of fascism. And you can see this not just into the type of political parties and statements being made by politicians inside Europe or, or the US. You can see this historically. It's a trend that uh, it, it really lies at the core of Western civilization and the wealth of ideas, some of which, you know, developed progressively. But we think of them progressively because their appeal universally is progressive, and that's okay. But the way this universal appeal of, of the ideas that emerged were actualized, were materialized, then shows us that the idea is not universal unless it is materially applied universally. And that is a major tension in Western civilization. And it has, to, you know, it has everything to do with colonialism and afterwards with imperialism. So now we're going back again to this... Uh, to this sort of claim of cultural superiority, this uh, suprematist missionary zeal that the West has, and it has unleashed in different scenarios. Uh, you know, unfortunately, when we think about the slaughter being taking place of all these Ukrainians in the war, or the way they stood, everybody, you know, each one of them stood so strongly with Israel. The West is, is chaos right now. The West is a jungle. It feels the pressure coming from the majority of the world that is asking to be treated equally. And I don't think it's ready to do so, especially its ruling classes. So the West needs to really face a battle with itself because the South knows where the path is. And it cannot be stopped because it's history. It's not a question. It's not going to be a bomb, the missiles or anything. Because they already killed 5 million people in the, in the Middle East. Yet... Resistance will always come back. So it's a question of really having to face a declining project of domination of the world that is failing. It's looking hypocritical and nobody really trusts, has any trust in it anymore. So yeah, I guess I answered your question. No, thank you so no, much. Thank you. Thank you. I guess my, the last question I wanted to close with was kind of like a reiteration of, of some of the points that you had made earlier. Yeah. You know, on with fascism and honestly, with what your uh, last response revealed, we could also chop this up to colonialism as well. That uh, foundational myths, nationalistic attitude, moral arrogance and abhorrent dehumanization of the other <laughs> are necessary technologies to sustain the in-group of a fascist state. <laughs> and these tools are often employed to the population uh, that is represented by the state, the in-group. Propaganda serves to gain the confidence of this group. This is true with Nazi Germany and Israel as well. True. We see the crimes of the Israeli state being shunned by the world, but Israelis. Poll results from a November article are as follows. 57.5% of Israeli Jews believe that the IDF were using too little firepower in Gaza. 36.6% said the IDF was using the appropriate amount. And only 1.8% said they believed the IDF was using too much firepower. And 42 said they were unsure. Does, does Israel care about what the world thinks as long as its people and U.S. leadership support their massacre? Or, I mean, is this even a, I guess, like, to go to your question to moment, response to Momadou's question, is this even um, 
really about you know some sort of uh, approval of the onlooking world is this purely as you said something to be sorted out on the battlefield one of the things that immediately came to my mind when uh, when you were talking about this is the fact that uh, especially in the western part of the world the global and the global north there's always this standards even among so-called western left the parties and groups to say oh, oh we need to we need to have a peaceful solution we need to bring israelis and palestinians to the table then you look at this kind of polls and you realize that what kind of israelis are you going to bring to the table really what is it a 1.3 you said right right One yeah point, 1.8 1.8 1.8 <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah, what be, what be, what is it, 10,000, I don't know, 1,000 people, 2,000 people, some, I don't know. Anyway, the point is that the solution to what is happening will not be decided by, by Israeli society at this point anymore. Israeli society has a, a dilemma to face, which is, it's not so much we're supporting the occupation or not. It's realizing that their living standards are constantly, have been constantly and historically sustained by U.S. imperialism. So the question to be posed would be, do you renounce to your imperialist privileges? Because the moment you do so, the moment you renounce to be part of that structure that is clobbering the South and is clobbering the Palestinians, in which you accepted to have a special relationship, a special place in that imperialist web, the moment you renounce to that, then you allow an, an indigenous development of, the, of Palestine. But that's not going to happen. We know that. That's not going to happen because uh, at the same time, the whole Zionist ideology is a product of the Western Judeo-Christian civilization. So once again, we are faced with ideas that emerge directly from a material project that was created to maintain and to establish Western supremacy over the world. And this is where, you know, the work of, uh, you know, you were mentioning Ilan Pape and many others is important because there is a need to dismantle the fact that Zionism equals Jewishness. Zionism is the most fascist vision of what being a Jew means. And it's just weaponized to justify the occupation of Palestine. So at that point, what we're faced with, it doesn't matter what Israeli society is, you know, is doing, it's just you, you, we need to approach the issue clearly. And once you take off the imperialist privilege, and once you realize that there is a diversity in how Jewishness is expressed, oh my God, maybe Israel, after all, you don't need it anymore. I think it's so interesting when you, you hear things like the US president, that Israel is the safest place for Jewish people in the world. And I'm thinking to myself, are you not embarrassed as a president of the United States to be saying that your country isn't a safe haven for Jewish people? And we had Professor Elan Pape speak to us and he said, hmm. I mean, his estimation was that Israel is the most dangerous place for Jewish people to live. That's true. Israel. And it will continue, and it will continue to do so. And one thing I find interesting about the Zionist project and people speak about the Israeli left and you know the Zionist entity but if I'm being honest at this stage as you correctly said Zionism the ideology of Zionism grew out of a material process however at this stage I believe the society uh, is pathological at this stage hmm. the hatred I, I, I've met people yeah. and this is going to be a hot take 
which I'm going to probably get cancelled for. But I have found a lot of synergy mm-hmm. between Afro pessimism and Zionism. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> tell me more. Tell me more. I want to hear more, Mama. <laughs> Only at the level of this understanding of ontological suffering. Hmm, hmm, hmm. So the, the level of ontological suffering that the whole world is structurally anti-black and therefore there can be no way forward. I've often, when I speak to people who are Zionists and I've met Zionists at my college campus who have said things like, the whole world conspires for Jewish destruction. And whilst what happens to the Palestinians might be sad, it may be, it might not be good. However, it's necessary for the survival of Jewish people. And I'm just like, oh, wow. Like you, you sincerely believe there is like this ontological, the world is geared, the arc of the world is geared for the destruction of Jewish people in every epoch, no matter what. And therefore that justifies your actions in the world. Actually, to respond to that moment, there's a, there's a quote from a Stokely Carmichael lecture in which he, he responds to a body of students, uh, many of whom uh, are Jewish and some of them being more sympathetic to the Zionist cause. And someone parrots the same line, right? Then the need for an, an Israeli state is the need to protect the global Jewish population. But then Carmichael responds by saying, if you wanted to protect the global Jewish population, why would you collect them all in one place? Logistically, that's not even a smart thing to do. It's sad. And uh, I call this uh, the oppression Olympics, you know, when they take place where everybody comes to the table and starts, you know, listing their suffering. And that somehow justifies any kind of political strategy that comes after, you know. But that is not what, uh, you know, a project or a political project should be looking like Zionism at this stage has turned into, has been also uh, submerged by that same wave of fascism yep. that, you know, that is undergoing in the West. So it's at its peak right now, especially with the entrance into government of the Haredim, the Orthodox part of the population. Yep. There is a complete dehumanization what christian was talking about before of the palestinians yeah. we could we can see this we can see but it, you know what is beautiful about this is that we can see it and we know that this this can't last because people like us cannot and don't want to live according to the exactly. standards you know we can't we can't we we are you know we're suffering we are all suffering when we see this like yeah. i don't want to live thinking that there is people who are who are capable of committing such things yeah mm-hmm. and then you see it in the, uh, the ios videos how sadistic they are and every accusation becomes a confession for the israeli state <laughs> and I often i mean to close out the show i often say that you know it's not a matter of when palestine will free it's just it's not a matter of if palestine will be free it's just when at this point you thank know you so much <laughs> go ahead guys because uh, you know thank we you need so to much. leave them in a good note thank you guys <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much people until next time until next time <laughs>